through the book of uh, Luke, which is a gospel account of the life and teachings of Jesus. And so what we're going to do in, uh, on October 16th is just take uh, just a couple weeks and just kind of talk about briefly uh, what happens in here. Why do we do the things that we do so that we understand more fully why is it that we preach the Bible and believe that preaching is central to us as a gathered people? Why do we take the Lord's Supper weekly? Uh, why does that matter? What are we seeing in that? Why do we uh, sing to God and sing to each other? What does that have to do with us as a called people of God as we gather together? So we're going to walk through just some of those things uh, together as a family and then get back into Luke uh, as we roll towards Christmas. So weird that we're even thinking about Christmas uh, like that. So um, also want you to know that the, the last Sunday of every month is the benevolence offering. And so the benevolence is always on the table straight in the back. It's a black box. It has benevolence on it. Uh, you guys know all the other places that we give are those silver boxes that are on the wall. So thanks in advance for your generosity. Why don't we uh, ask God for help? Um, we as a people know that we are in desperate need of help every time we open up the Bible. So just if you're new to Christianity or new to attending church, we don't believe that just by looking at the Bible, you're magically going to change. Uh, there's something outside of you that has to to ignite the Word of God in you and give you what's called illumination of your eyes or illumination of your heart, and that is called the, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinitarian God. So we want to ask Him to be kind to us this morning to give us illumination. So would you join me as we pray, and then we'll, we'll get into a very, I think, common text that many of us are familiar with. Uh, God, thank you that you choose to speak. Thank you that you do give life to those who are dead. God, thank you that those who are lost can be found through the rescuing and ransoming work of Jesus. Thank you that no one is outside of the grace of Jesus in the cross, uh, that there is no sin too deep, no space too far that we could crawl into and hide that would not be too far from your relentless hand that can grip and pull into restoration. God, would there be restoration this morning in hearts, in minds, in souls, God, would uh, you speak to us in the ways you need to speak? Help the text to read us. Help the text to examine us in ways that are necessary uh, that might even hurt a bit, but so that it might make us more in the image of God. Thank you that you're for our joy and for our good as we read. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 15. If you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles, I always say, uh, on the back wall, you can pick one up, grab one uh, that's yours to keep. It's our gift to you. Luke chapter 15. Um, uh, the text you're going to find this morning is actually a, a super common one, uh, but I think with a lot of unfamiliar aspects to it. And that's just the genius of Jesus as a teacher. Okay, Jesus always speaks in such a way that is just mind-boggling. Now, I don't, I don't know if you're that type of person who you kind of look at the scriptures, if you take time long enough and actually look at the things that Jesus said, it's, it's staggering. You can't make them up, right? Which is another reason for me and even my conversion as I'm reading the New Testament, reading the Gospels, just over and over seeing, man, this guy has to be God. I mean, the things that he says, the ways that he works, the ways that he uh, interacts with people is, is definitely divine. And you're going to see that with the prodigal son this morning. And the prodigal son is, um, a lot of people say even historically, you get secular and, and Christian, um, one of the most well-known stories kind of in the scriptures. And you got to know where this is placed. The prodigal son is placed where there are Pharisees and scribes, these religious people who uh, basically thought the things that Jesus was doing was attributing them to Satan and not to God, so their hearts were very far from God, even though they claimed to be very near to God. And so he kind of rolls out, as these tax collectors and sinners are coming near him, he rolls out these three parables. Now, it's, it's really one story with three parts. You have uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And so uh, we saw last week that Jesus is our good shepherd, that he seeks and searches and finds us as that lost coin. He gives us dignity, value, and worth 
that he saves what wouldn't be uh, lovable in the world's eyes, that he's the one who comes and carries us in our shame to the celebration of the Father. You're going to continue to see this theme of the joy of God in saving sinners. And I said last week, that's going to shock some of you. Because some of you guys are going, man, why would I ever want to confess my sins? If I, I've heard about God, I've heard people talk about God. He's, he's holy. I know he, he judges. He sends to hell. He, well, you know he's eager to forgive. You know he's a God that actually is eager to love those who don't love him, don't want him, and he actually makes enemies his friends. So we talked about, hey, if you've got issues judging Jesus, you might want to judge your own heart because I don't think any of us, if we're honest, would want an enemy to come in our house and dine with us. I think we'd say stay outside. And God says, hey, I'll give you the keys to my kingdom through the work of my son. Not because you're pretty, not because you earned it, not because you merited it, but because of what Jesus did. And so uh, as we get into Luke 14, remember, Jesus ended chapter 14 saying, hey, everybody who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what's crazy is the people coming to hear Jesus are the tax collectors and sinners, are the ones listening in, while the religious are outside going, I can't believe he dines with them, I can't believe he eats with them, right? And here's what we got to understand, that the tax collector issue we talked about last week, the reason this is so scandalous to the religious elite is because of looking at these tax collectors as people that were the scum of society, the, the lowest of the low. When, when, when Rome ruled the known world, you know, England to India, a huge portion, and they had a massive army, they were horrific, they were evil, they were brutal, they would crucify men, women, and children naked on the side of the road. So as you went to the town to kind of find out things, you go, man, don't mess with Rome because they're, they're evil, they're wicked. And then some Jews would actually buy Roman tax franchises to extort money from their own people to fill the assets of Rome. So that's like your neighbor working for a company or a people that murdered someone in your family. Right, this is, this is deep. There's deep wounds here. There's deep pain here. Then you got sinner. We said, when, when they say sinner, it's like this, it's not this like, um, you know, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. We kind of have the junk drawer for sinner. No, this is people who had deformities, illnesses. Uh, sin was something they believed that, that you could catch, right? Like an illness. It could jump on you. So, so don't get around sinners. It'll, it'll jump on you. Well, we know we're all sinners by nature and choice. So sin indwells. It's not something you, you catch from somebody else. It's something you catch from birth. Right, because we're all ch born with a disposition to choose outside God's beautiful design. And so uh, here, here's what we're seeing is they are gathering as Jesus is with them. He breaks down these stories. As we enter this story this morning, you need to understand he's going after that explicit statement, them grumbling and complaining that he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. And one thing you have to hit as you look at the story is you have to understand their culture. If you don't understand how they think, it'll, it'll be very hard for you as you look at this. So here's the really, I think, blanket statement you need to get as you roll into the prodigal son. They are huge on honor and shame. Okay, their, their, their culture's honor and shame. So you do whatever it takes to keep your honor, and you don't do whatever, whatever's necessary to keep you from doing something shameful. So let's, let's roll in, because we've got a lot of work to do. It's a, it's a long parable. Most people do 17 weeks on it. We're going to do one. Uh, verse 11, here is what uh, Jesus says. Okay, well, really, uh, Luke says, okay, but, but he tells what Jesus said. And he said, verse 11, this is Jesus speaking to the tax collectors and sinners and to the Pharisees and scribes. Everybody can hear him. There's a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, out of the gate, this is so disrespectful and selfish on the younger brother's part. 
Okay, so he looks at the dad, and, and here's what would happen. When the father dies, the, the older son would actually gain the estate. So here's what the younger son is actually saying to this dad. He's saying, hey, dad, um, can you kind of move out of the way because there are things that I want. I want independence. I want freedom. I don't want you to be authority over me. So give me the money that I deserve now. I don't want to wait for it. I don't want to long for it. I want it now. There, there's immediate desires for lust and reckless living. There's greed in his heart. There's sin in his heart. So he basically says, hey, dad, could you just die off? Right, outright disrespectful, outright just awful and sinful towards the Father. And as he wants this, everyone listening at this point, because this is like public outrage to the Jewish system and society, everybody would think, well, the right response from the Father to keep his honor, not be shamed by his son, is to beat his son, is to punish his son, is to discipline his son. Right, and everyone knew no son would ever say this because in an in in honoring culture, you don't say that to your dad. But what does the father do? It's so counterintuitive. He, he divides it up. Two-thirds would go to the older son, one-third to the younger son. And he says, here you go, you can have it. So people listening in are going, there's something wrong with this story, right? Jesus is laying this before him because he wants them to think deeply, and he knows the way that they think and their shame on our culture. And of course, Jesus has a point. This is a parable. It's a story And so it says, not many days later. This is showing the quickness of the younger son's actions. He is so driven by lust, driven by greed. This is, man, I need to get away from restraint, from accountability, from from oversight of any kind as fast as I can to go indulge in everything I want to indulge in. This is fundamentally sin. We rebel against God because we want something that we think God can't give us. We want to go after it and chase it as fast as we can. And so here you see the younger son goes to a distant country, gets as far away from his family as possible, doesn't give a rip about his brother, a rip about his dad, a rip about honor and shame, and he goes to a far distance, and it says he just squanders all that he has in reckless living. You see later in verse 30 with prostitution, with other things. And isn't this not something we can identify with for a minute, that we, that we sacrifice our future at the altar of the immediate Right? Yeah, the, the Bible's gonna call this nearsightedness. I really believe nearsightedness is the root of almost every sin that we commit. Um, it, it's where you, you see something just right in front of you, but you see nothing beyond it, right? So all you want is immediacy, immediate pleasure, immediate freedom, immediate unrestraint, and immediate just fulfillment of whatever your heart is longing for. So some of us, that, that's, here's what we do. We, we say, um, I, I just have to have X, Y, Z, so I'm going to indulge in that. We never think about later. You think about nothing beyond it, right? So, so I, I just have to have this pill right now because it'll give me pleasure in this moment, right? I, I have to jump in this relationship right now because it'll give me so much pleasure. I have to, you know, have this drink or do this thing, or I have to look at this, or press this website, or fill in the blank. I mean, I have to eat this right now because of the immediate gratification, but here's the thing. We're so nearsighted, we sacrifice the, 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 the future at the immediate that we don't see down the road. We don't see beyond it, so no one's thinking, man, what am I going to feel in my soul tomorrow? Man, what's my wife going to feel the next day? What are my kids going to experience for the next week or months, or what might I regret for all of eternity? You just see right here. 
but you just see right in front of you, and so all your decisions are based on the nearsightedness that the lie that the younger son buys, that temporary pleasure will outweigh the future glory and joy that God can give you in his father's arms. And so we say, yes, I want this, I don't want that, so let me chase and pursue that, even though you'll see in this text, lusts are just replaced with new lusts. And it leads to emptiness, and then your old lusts are replaced with new lusts until you run to Jesus, until you return to the Father. And so many of us do this. Many of us chase this. And so here we're seeing the younger brother buy the lie, the temporary pleasure over the eternal joy of being with the Father. He's wasting his life. You know, that's where the prodigal son comes from. It means to waste. It means wasteful. Verse 14, here you're going to see it. You're going to see it roll out. And when he had spent everything... Right? He had nothing left, pockets are empty, took his whole estate inheritance, turned it in for cash. A severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, so after becoming a slave to his lust, a slave to his heart outside of God, not pursuing God, not wanting God, wanting what he thought was best for him, that's fundamentally called idolatry, right? We want to be God of our life. We don't want God to be God of our life. We don't trust him. We trust our hearts, even though we're instinctively wrong time and time and time again, because you didn't create you. God created you. And so you see this chasing. And after he hits the end of that, you see this famine roll in. Now, if you know anything about famines historically in ancient history, you're going to see crazy stuff. I mean, People would eat sandals. They would eat garbage. They would eat the afterbirth. I mean, this is like, like crazy, crazy, crazy things that you would see as you read about um, uh, famines. They, they would eat stray animals. They would become desperate. So he becomes in need, deeply in need. He's so desperate, he becomes a beggar, glues himself to probably a Gentile who can't get rid of him, so he says, hey, go feed my pigs. Now, you know the Jews listening in are going to think that's even more horrific because pigs are looked at as the most unclean animal. So now this good Jewish boy is going to go spend his time putting his face between snouts of pigs, trying to eat what they eat? At this point, you have to understand the depth of shame that he feels. Some of you guys feel shame, right? Not only the shame of abusing and squandering the estate, not only the shame of treating his father this way, not only the shame of locking himself to a Gentile, not only the shame of digging his face between pigs to eat out of the pods, all of this shame that he feels by being a beggar, by wasting his life on lust. The shame is really beyond comprehension to us. Now, you know what you're seeing at this point in the parable, in the story? You're seeing desperation. You're seeing the state of a sinner outside of the saving work of Jesus. Desperate, hopeless, helpless, stained, shameful. 
Right? You're seeing in his heart this, this longing, this, this desire, this, this, and you're seeing another picture of sin being rebellion to God. You're seeing a picture here of rebellion of the one who now has no relationship with the one who made him, no relationship with the one who has all the needs to care for him and provide for him, right? This is sin. You run away from the good God of all creation who is our Father, who knows how to care for us and give for us, and we indulge in self-indulgence. We buy the lie that'll satisfy, and as we do that, we find ourselves broken to the point of almost death needing help and you're seeing this in the son sin always looks away from God to find fulfillment and never finds it and that's what he did and it leaves you exhausted emptied hungry hopeless verse 17 thank goodness something starts to change in him verse 17 says but when he came to himself it's really other translations say when he came to his senses he started realizing what was going on He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's thinking this as his face is between pigs, not being able to even get food from there. He's still hungry. Incredible he starts to realize something. Here's what's, here's what's so awesome, is, is, is he's starting to realize something that is going to turn his heart back towards the Father. And what he starts realizing is the character of his dad. That's why he says, right here in verse 17, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? You have to understand a hired servant. You have to understand the economic ladder that this takes. Okay, you have, you have basically the landowners, okay? They own all the land. They're the big cheese. They're the Bill Gates. They're the Donald Trumps. They're the guys with, with all the money, okay? They have, they have all the land. Then you have kind of the, the under tiers is farmers. Farmers buy kind of parts of that land, and they use it to kind of plow and do different things. And under the farmers, you have business owners. They kind of buy even smaller plots of land to kind of run their little business, do crafts. And underneath the shop owners, you have servants. And these servants were, were hired into the family taken it as their own to kind of work the household, work the farm. And then under servants, you have hired servants. They were the ones who just kind of stood around asking for jobs, asking for work, never invited in as a family, never given opportunity. They were the lowest of the low. They were the bottom of the totem pole. And the son is going, hold on, he's recalling the character of his father. My father's merciful. My father's good. He cares for the lowest of the low, provides them more than I have. And here's what is so awesome in this story. Understanding the character of the father is what moves him to return to the father. Like like your confession to God is inextricably tied to your understanding of the character of God. Like, like this is, when you start understanding what God is like in his mercy, kindness, grace towards sinners, it's what gives you the ability to run to him and not from him when you're filled with shame. 
And so here he's seeing the, the, he's recalling the character of the father. He's remembering his mercy, his goodness, all the things he once mocked in his dad. And here is what is so beautiful. This is what moves him to say, I'm going to return to my father because I'm going to trust in my father's mercy. I'm going to trust in my father's goodness. I'm going to trust in my father's compassion. I know that this is the nature of my dad. As he's sitting in inexplicable shame, He's able to say and think, and that's why because of this realization, he's going to say to him, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. You know what? I don't even deserve to be your son. Just make me a hired servant. Make me one of the lowest of the low. Just for a second, when you begin to understand the character of God, brothers and sisters, if you're a blood-bought citizen of the kingdom, this is, this is what enables you to run to him in your sin in your stumbling and your failure and not from him. And I think one of the most beautiful pictures I see of this is in Psalm 51. It'll be on the screen for just a second. We'll look at three verses. David, king of Israel, commits adultery with Bathsheba, then kills off you know, uh, the, the, her dad just to try and cover it up, her husband to cover it up, and comes out of a place of desperation. You're, you're seeing almost, almost the younger son in David in Psalm 51. And, and here's what you have David say to God. Look at how he appeals for forgiveness, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. <laughs> okay, David first says, forgive me because I know my sin. He just straight up acknowledges it. There's no hiding. There's no covering it up. Hey, I, I've done this thing. And, and look, I know I've done this thing, God. It's always before me, right? There, there's good nearsightedness. Or he doesn't have nearsightedness. He sees what's before him. He doesn't just see the end. He's aware of the detriment of his actions before God first. It's always offending God before others. That's what godly sorrow is. And you have him here just, saying, just showing this way of confession. Now, um, here's the thing. I think first, when we come to God asking for forgiveness and turning back, we, we do it wrong a lot of times. Either we appeal to our own goodness and say, hey, God, I've been really good this week, and I, that was the first time I screwed up, so you, you're going to forgive me, right? Or, or we let time pass, right? You commit a sin, you do something, they go, well, I don't know, okay, so you spend a week of like trying to read really well or doing a bunch of good works thinking, then when you come back later to the Father, maybe he'll forgive you then because he's seen your rap sheet this week. And you know, in all of those cases, you are fundamentally appealing to God based upon your own goodness and not the character of his great goodness. That's what you're doing, and David shows us that is the opposite of how we come to him. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your unfailing love, your great compassion. I love this. This is so, this is so important. He goes, God, for me, give, God, forgive me because you are so loving, right? Because your love doesn't fail. It's, it's, it's in your character to love. It's, it's who you are. I'm not coming to you based upon how well I love or what I do. I'm appealing to you based upon what I know to be true about you. And what is true about you is you are unrelentless in your great love and compassion towards those who are yours. 
and your unrelentingly compassionate and gracious toward those who are not yours in the cross of Christ, give them a picture of what they can have in sharing with the goodness of the Father. And this is unbelievable here to see that his understanding of the character of God is what drives even David to confess his sin and repent of his sin. And so God's giving us in the prodigal son a picture of God the Father in Christ. Seeing the character of God. And this is why I love verse 20. Because it's going to get ridiculous. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. Now, now, here's why it gets ridiculous at this point. Everybody listening, especially the Pharisees, are going to know exactly what the father would do at this point. The father's going... Or the Pharisees are going, okay, I know what the father's going to do. He's going to get word that, hey, hey, your son's coming back. He's returning. Your rebellious son has squandered all your estate. He's coming back. He's going to go, okay, yeah, uh, tell him to wait four days. During those four days, he'd take the mockery and the, and the rebuke and the scorn of the people in the village, might be stoned, pelted with rocks. Deuteronomy 21 said he could be beaten and possibly given to death if the rebellion was so severe. And then if he's still good after all that discipline for shaming me and not keeping my honor, uh, yeah, tell him to come in. Then he can kneel at me. He'll kiss my feet. And then he'll get up and he'll spend decades trying to repay me for what he squandered. That's what would happen. What does the father do? Something very, very strange to their culture. But while he was still a long way off, the son his father saw him and felt compassion. Didn't feel anger, didn't feel rage, felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He does exactly what he was planning to do, exactly what was going through his mind and his head and his heart. But the father said to him, this is where he should say, okay, take four days. Now, deal with some mockery. You need to be disciplined. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate for this was my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found and they begin to celebrate. Okay, get this, all right? The son is still outside the village the father sees him coming, right? And, and in this moment, understand, coming home is an enormous task for the son. Even though he kind of knows the character of his father, he thinks he's revealing all these things, you bet he's got his head down. He's thinking, okay, I know I could be pelted with rocks. Okay, I know I could experience mockery. Okay, I know, I believe, I believe this is true about the father, but man, I don't know if he's just gonna, you know, rightly discipline me for the just, just way I dishonored him and all the shame I've been through. And I'm sure there's a mix of emotions going on in this son as he is heading back home. And as he looks, up. Can you imagine he sees the dad running at him? Like, like, listen, if you understand your sin, this will help. Like, he sees the father running at him. And here's the thing. Uh, some of you guys know this. Um, in, in this culture, man, you don't run as an old person. You don't lift up your robe. Okay, that's just weird anyways for any older man to do, right? He, that's just something that, that doesn't happen. So, so here, he lifts up his robe, which shows his legs, which was basically showing shame again. It's a shameful thing to do. And he runs through the village as the town and village mocks him, scorns him, shames him for going after his son, who they think deserves discipline and punishment. Why? Why does he do that? Because he wants to get to the son before the son gets to the village. 
And he gets to the son and he wraps his arms around him and starts kissing him. This is, this is the word for unending kisses, full reconciliation, full peace, shalom, full love. This is not, I love you, hey, but you better pay it later. And he embraces his son. Amazing. Because he knows when the son arrives, there will be mockery, there will be scorning, there will be shaming. And so he hugs him in his pig-stained, smelling clothes and kisses him. No shame for that boy. That boy has to endure no shame. And that's why it's amazing, because he should have been beaten. He should have possibly been put to death. You know what you're seeing, friends? Grace. Because some of you are going, well, he shouldn't do that. I know he shouldn't. (laughs) That's grace. Unmerited, unearned, scandalous grace. To a a son who was rightly deserving of all of that. And the father shows him unbelievable compassion and grace. And the father is God in Christ who initiates. He sees the sinner before the sinner sees him. He pursues the son and he says, in limitless love and limitless grace, you're mine. You're mine. And I'll take the shame. I'll take the mockery. I'll take all that for you because you're my son. Full sonship. You have him welcome the son in and embraces him, blesses him, kisses him. When we sin and rebel and ruin our lives, if in repentance we turn back to the father, he pursues us and grabs hold of us. It's an amazing picture of repentance, just this whole, and we're going to see that at the tail end. But here's the other thing I want you to see. Salvation is instantaneous. It's God who saves and God who keeps. So the privileges for the son are right away. Hey, man, get a robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. Where's the fat calf? Hey, let's have a huge party. Eat drink, eat, drink good wine. Eat good steak. Let's celebrate because my son who was dead is alive. My son who was lost is now found. And here's the thing, the robe that's probably his robe, that was probably his father's robe, maybe an heirloom, this, this demonstrated dignity. Hey, clothe him in dignity. Give him the robe of the family. I mean, put the ring on his finger. This isn't like, you know, hey, cool, you get something sparkly. This is, hey, this is showing stewardship and authority of the family. They used to stamp it in hot wax, right, when they send official documents of, of the family out. This is showing you're, you're sharing the authority of your father. Sound familiar? You're given the keys of the kingdom? Put shoes on his feet. Poor people didn't wear shoes. Shoes were a sign of responsibility, rights. Bring the fattened calf. Fattened calf was really only used for serious celebrations. It was only for times when you would basically have, usually the older brother's wedding ceremony, they'd use it. So they use it instead for him because this is a great celebration, great time to be merry and have a party. This is full sonship. He gives his son dignity, authority, responsibility, And some of you, as we're doing this, are going, where's the older brother? Shouldn't he be celebrating too? Verse 25, Luke's going to tell us. Now his older brother was out in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother's come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf. Can you imagine the older brother hearing that? Wait, my wedding calf? Excuse me? Excuse me, he killed my wedding calf or? Yep, that's what he's thinking. He has received him back safe and sound. What's his response? He's furious, he's angry. 
and he refuses to go in. He's not just angry, he refuses to even go in and see his brother. Now, understand, the older son, he's supposed to set up these types of celebrations. He was actually responsible for that, festivities, birthdays. He's nowhere to be found. Here's the thing that you're seeing. Um, He had no relationship with the father either. He hated the father too. The father didn't consult him on the party. He was probably out working. Father goes inside. He finds himself outside. Here's some music and dancing. They were dancing. Okay, some of you got that. Okay, so, so they're in there, right? There's music, there's dancing. And as he goes, he goes to find a servant. He's like, um, so what's going on in there? Why is there music? Why is there dancing? And the servant's going, wait, you, don't, you, you didn't hear that your, your brother came home? You didn't hear? They, they lit up the fattened calf, cut it up into pieces. Everybody's having good steak. And you didn't hear about that? Thank you. <laughs> I'm into this too. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm wrapping up, little one. Don't worry. <laughs> so cute. So cute. Okay, but getting back. When he says that he's received you safe and sound, when he says that, it's the word of shalom, it's the word of peace. It's the word of your father's given your younger brother full reconciliation, full kindness, full peace, full restoration. And his response is anger. The Pharisees and scribes just showed up in the story. Jesus is telling them the story based upon their grumblings that he sits and eats with tax collectors and sinners. So they just show up. They're the ones who sit outside judging, hypocritical, Arrogant, prideful, look at what Jesus is doing. We don't go in there. We're holy. They're unholy. Jesus is a fool. Just like he's saying the father is a fool inside for holding the party. Here you see him just angry at God for embracing sinners. He's outside smirking when he should be inside celebrating. Pharisees and scribes were just as lost as the tax collectors and sinners. They were just as entrenched in sin as the tax collectors and sinners, just a different kind. So what about the gospel? Religious, irreligious, you both need Jesus. You're both damned apart from Jesus. That's why it's his righteous works that are credited to you, not your righteous works and not how bad you are. Both of those can create a separation between you and God the Father. Either you thinking, yeah, I'm really good, I'm earning this, or, man, I'm just too bad, I'm too shameful, I could never earn it. Both are arrogant positions to be in. Because the one that's saying, well, I'm too bad, I'm too shameful, I could never earn it, that's an arrogant statement to say, wait, so you're outside the saving blood of Jesus who slaughtered himself for you? That's just a form of self-pity, which is really pride. And so here you have his response being anger, and they're likely thinking, I... I love trying to get in the heads of these guys. They're likely probably thinking, finally somebody who gets it, the older brother. He gets it. Yeah, what is a father doing? Right, I mean, why is he having a celebration? Does he understand what the kid just did with his estate and the prostitution and all that? I mean, why in the world is he having a celebration? Finally, we got somebody with sense and with character in the story. Dangerous. Dangerous. Verse 28 will show us why. His father came out. Now the dad comes out. Dad didn't have to. 
And he entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when the son of yours came, he says, when this son of yours came, doesn't even use his name, doesn't even say when my brother came. Oh, yeah, when that other son of yours, when he came in, doesn't even want to be associated. He's just as hypocritical as his heart towards those who he thinks is hypocritical. It's just a a circus, self-righteous people. And he's standing back and he's saying, that son of yours who came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's found. The father comes into the night, into the dark, finds the hypocritical, older, self-righteous brother and he, said, he entreats him. He shows mercy to him. extends grace to him. Here's what's awesome. The father shows grace to both. He shows grace to the older brother and grace to the younger, younger brother. He says, don't do this. Come in. He goes, don't you know this party isn't just for your son? This party is ours. The fattened calf is already yours. Come, eat, drink, dance, celebrate. But it's not going to happen like this. You've got to enter a relationship with me for this to work. Don't you know this party can be all of ours together? Don't you know that what is mine is yours? I already gave you your share of the inheritance. I've never shown you in my character that I'm not good, that I'm not kind, that I'm not merciful. And yet you still stand outside here with an arm's length going, I don't want you. And the older brother to that rolls his eyes in self-righteousness. Look at everything I've done for you. Don't you see my, my, my rap sheet here? Don't you see all my straight A's that earn me varsity? Don't, don't you see what I've done for you as a son? Does that sound familiar to some of us? And how we treat God and how we look at others with superiority? Don't you see me, what I'm doing? And Jesus just goes after it. And the older brother's standing there just appealing to all of his goodness and not to and not seeing all of his righteousness is blinding him to the good character of his dad. You know, that's why many self-righteous religious people will be sent to hell when they die because their good works in the name of boosting for themselves a name and a place is clouding their face and their mind to actually the only righteousness they can be given. And they've totally forgotten, wow, I'm a sinner in desperate need of grace and moved to, I deserve more than that. That's what happens. I remember this in seminary. I'm still in seminary. I've been there for like 15,000 years. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm in there taking classes, lights at the end of the tunnel. And I remember I've had times where I'm sitting in classes going, these are future ministers of God's grace who are the most ungracious people I've ever seen. I'm not stereotyping seminary students. I'm just saying being around people that just share in the grace of God, share in the kindness of God, sharing to long to see sinners saved, some of the conversations I would hear would not demonstrate Jesus' heart. Myself being convicted of those very thoughts and those very things. And here you see Jesus revealing his heart so you know at this point what would be a great ending to this story? You ever done that with parables? Like just try to finish them off? Like this one's not really, it's not really done, right? Because you're like, what, what happens with the older brother? 
What's he actually going to do? So it would be great if we could say, if we could insert ourselves inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and say, well, you know what? The older brother realized how hypocritical and self-righteous he was, and he saw the compassion and mercy and kindness of the dad, how loving he was. He fell at his feet. He repented, turned to his father, and went in and sat at the table with his dad and his brother and joined in all the inheritance that is in the house. It doesn't end that way. Many of you, if you know your Bible, knows how it really ends. The older brother, upon hearing what the father said, grew even more angry, picked up a piece of wood, and beat the dad to death. That's what happens. Because within hours and days, the Pharisees are going to take him to a piece of wood, which is a cross, and literally sentence him to death. And they're going to applaud themselves because they thought they were protecting honor for their religion. They were protecting honor for what they did by shaming the one who they thought deserved to be shamed when really they were committing the greatest act of shame in the universe. So what do you see in this story? I think we see two sinners, two types the rebellious and the religious. The rebellious are all about breaking the rules, doing what they want. The religious are all about keeping the rules as best they can. The rebellious are the people where all their sins are really visible. Drunkenness, cheating, lying, stealing, prostitution. The religious sins are invisible. Critical spirit, arrogance, pride, hatred. And both will be damned without the help of a third son, the one who's given the parable. There's a third son in the story. His name is Jesus. And he does not abuse his father. He does not neglect his father. He does not use his father. He's perfectly obedient to his father to the point where he goes to a cross and lives a life for the religious and the irreligious, taking on their religion, all their righteous works that cannot achieve for them merit, taking on their shame, their guilt, their condemnation, and pays it in full in the cross, rises again, validating, you can get in my family only through me. If you're bought by me, right? I'm the only son that behaves perfectly, The two sons you see in the story, they don't behave rightly or righteously. My son's the only one who behaves perfectly and obediently and honors the father. So who do you identify with in Luke 15? I want to give you just a second to take some inventory. Um, Is your life marked by shame? I know many of you it is, and and you've done things in your past that you wish you could change, wish you could fix. You have deep regret, deep remorse. Every time we sit down, it's the circling back to the shame that you feel. You don't want to be in that place anymore, but you feel the weight of it. Awful, horrific things that come up to your mind, come up to your memory. And so you've somehow bought the lie that the cross of Christ is supposed to give you joy in, which says you think there are certain people that deserve this from God. I'm not in the camp that deserves this from God, so I'm going to keep launching headlong into my sin and my shame. I'm not going to run to the Father understanding his character that gives me compassion, love, mercy, forgiveness. Do you relate with feeling shame? Have you so told yourself there's no way this can be for you? I'm telling you you're embracing a lie 
Because when he came and died and rose like the Father in this story, he took all your shame. He ran through the gauntlet of shame for you. And all the mockery and all the feelings and all the dirt and all the garbage, man, he just threw on his son. And then he comes to you and he clothes you and he goes, hey, just wear my robe. Put this ring on your finger. Put these shoes on your feet. I'm going to celebrate you, not because of you, because of what my son has done in you. And he calls you his own. I mean, look, the enemy loves to use shame as a reason for you not to run to the good saving work of Jesus, the good father in Christ who runs to his son who was stuck in heinous shame. So let me just do this for you. If, if, if you can remember and, and bring to your mind the, the farthest place you've ever gone, whether in your mind, your heart, your actions, your affections, and, and you can feel it. You can feel the weight of just dirt and shame, and I don't want anyone to know this. I don't want to come out of hiding. I don't want to walk into the light. I just feel absolutely unwanted, undesirable. I want you to see Jesus Christ and all the slaughtering work on the cross, the blood that was necessary for you to cover you, and as he is in the grave, taking all of that that calls shame over you, all that pleads shame over you, puts it in the grave, sits with it, buries it. When he rises, the shame stays in the grave. He wraps his arms around you and says, you're mine. There's no God that does that. The gods have made by human hands, every other God of every other system says, appease me more. Mm, you're gonna have to pay for that shame. Say some prayers, say some chants, get on your rug, attend a little bit more faithfully. Jesus says, no, no, no. That's you, you must know the Father who gives you dignity, authority, and purpose. Maybe some of you guys represent or feel like the older brother, and what you've done is you've taken great pains in your life to build giant walls where everyone like you is welcomed in, but anyone who struggles isn't welcomed in. So you look at what everybody else does instead of how God needs to sharpen and sanctify and grow you, and you don't realize the danger of your heart there. And Jesus is alarming us of that. And here, here's the great news. If you're somebody... This is normally the camp, to be honest, that I, I tend to have to fight against because of just knowledge and, and what you do and being a pastor. And you know what's such good news for me? Every time I start realizing my heart in that way, as I remember the very people that were killing him, Jesus cries out, God, forgive him, that there's grace for you and me, that God extends grace to both, that God offers mercy and restoration and healing to both. And that's why we're going to give ourselves a moment um, before we take the Lord's Supper like we do every week to practice what the Bible calls repentance because the two parables before show it's repentance that God has given us as a gift to bring us to the Father in the sense of restoring and constantly walking what's called repentance. Here's what repentance is. It's turning from sin and turning towards the Father. And here's what I love. You're seeing an amazing picture of, of repentance in here the old, the, in, the younger, in the younger son. The younger son doesn't say, man, well, you know what? I just need to avoid prostitutes now. I just need to avoid, you know, being super greedy. I need to avoid. What does he do? He leaves it, but he pursues somebody. He turns to the Father. 
Right, this is what I think so many of us miss. We're just sin avoiders and sin managers. I know I say this almost every week, and I'm going to keep saying it because that's not repentance. Repentance is not you walking around and really still playing God by avoiding sin because what that does is you at the end of the day say, well, cool, I save myself again from lust, again from greed, again from with no help of Jesus, no pursuit of God, no help of the Holy Spirit. So you're God again. That circles you right back to Genesis 3, treason of the universe against God in idolatry. So you're just circling like this instead of saying, I'm turning from sin, I'm launching headlong into the only one that can break that thing in my life. So you pursue Jesus, push into him who he says, what he reveals, his character, his good nature through prayer, through community, through gathering, through asking other good brothers and sisters saying, help me in this. That's repentance because that produces change. Worldly sorrow just leaves you in the merry-go-round, the circus, the cul-de-sac, and you're going, I don't know why. I don't know why I can't break free of this. I don't. So let's do some repentance. Let's turn to the Father this morning. For those of you that are Christians, it's a mark of our ongoing life that God uses in his grace. So in this moment, if you're feeling shame or you're feeling self-righteous, repent of that and thank God for his character who's eager to forgive you in that state who says, look at Jesus, look at the blood that was shed, look at the body that was broken for you. And if you're in this room, we always say, if you're not a Christian, this is not for you to take because you've not identified with this, you're not in union with Christ, but we want you to know Jesus, we want you to celebrate him and repent of your sin in a saving way and say, God, I can't earn, I can't get favor, I realize that you call me to die to myself, die to my rights, die to my wants, you're in charge, you're God, you're Lord and Savior, there's lordship here, there's desire here, help me to turn from my sin, I see that Christ alone does that, you're welcome. We would celebrate with you like the dad, say, hey, join the feast, there's a party to be had because one sinner might repent. Let's ask God to help us as we consider our hearts. Father, thank you for this parable. Thank you that your scriptures are meant to lead us to life and understanding. God, I, I pray in this moment as I often pray, Holy Spirit of God, do what only you can do. Work in hearts, help us to confess where we need to confess, repent where we need to repent. God, protect us from taking stock of somebody else's heart, but take stock of our own. God, may there be repentance this morning, a turning from sin, a turning towards Christ that leads to change, deeper joy, deeper meaning, deeper purpose. Father, remind us this morning that you are after joy. You are after fruitfulness. You're after meaning. You're not a God that desires to keep from us, but a God that gives generously. Like in the garden, you tell Adam and Eve, have at it. Just don't take this one thing. You overflow with generosity. So God, where there might be lies, would you help correct with truth? Where there might be accusations of shame, would you correct with purpose and dignity and value? Where there might be self-righteousness and pride and arrogance, would you replace it with humility and contriteness? And then Father, might we worship you as we remember through the Lord's Supper and as we proclaim it with our lips in just a few moments. In Jesus' name, amen.